Hey guys, Greg here. Just a quick heads up. We are about to go into our summer break. We'll be off about a month. No big deal. As you know, about every 10 weeks, uh, we take a little break. Coincidentally or not, that is uh, my gestation period. (laughs) So we will be back very soon. In the meantime, we will be active on social media. We'll be posting different links to things, suggesting episodes that are relevant to, to listen to. For you Patreon subscribers, you know there's a plethora of extra stuff to listen to, and those that aren't yet members, I encourage you to do so. Tons of stuff. Anyway, enjoy the episode. By the summer of 1942, the United States had attacked Japan in a small aerial raid and had won an important naval battle near the tiny Pacific island known as Midway, but up to that point their land battles in the Philippines had been abject failures and are considered by some to be America's greatest military defeat. If they wanted to win the war, the Americans were going to have to gain a foothold in the Pacific, and so they turned their eyes to a tiny speck of land in the Solomon Islands archipelago that very few Americans had even ever heard of. What followed was a five-month campaign that exposed the soldiers to the full brutality of combat in the Pacific theater and created legendary figures in U.S. military history. We can't wait to tell you all about it, So, it is time once more to grab your drink, settle in, and enjoy this episode of 100 Proof History, titled The Battle of Guadalcanal, Blood for the Island. This is 100 Proof History. We're drinking whiskey and talking history. So, grab a drink, sit back, relax, and enjoy a few laughs as the guys talk about all the horrible things people do to each other. Here are your hosts... Chris and Greg. Hello, and welcome in, fellow non-combatants. You know, I feel like uh, we don't want to take a side in this war, so we're just going to be neutral this episode. Am I right, Chris? 100%. This will not be jingoism. This will not be how awesome America is. We're totally going to mention all the great things that the Japanese did in this battle. Especially if we want to fit in on Twitter. Oh, God. No no (laughs) pro-America stuff, right? Don't get me started on that thing. God. Like, I'll be having a good day and then open Twitter, and I just get angrier and angrier and angrier as I scroll, but I can't stop. I just can't help it. It doesn't matter what it's about. I saw something today about uh, Chris Evans. He's in the new Buzz Lightyear movie, and there was this big outrage about how Tim Allen wasn't the voice of Buzz Lightyear. And how it's cancel culture, and it's just like, uh? <laughs> it's like, these are the things we have time to fight about. We don't have a massive world war going on right now, so let's fucking argue about Tim Allen's career. Yeah, the downfall of Rome is happening. <laughs> uh, it's happening so slow, though. And, uh, I mean. Just like the downfall of Rome. I really don't care about it as long as I know that Amber Heard took a poop on a bed. Also the downfall of Rome. <laughs> That's also part of it, is caring about (laughs) superfluous shit like that. Cleopatra and Julius Caesar just sitting in court, and he's like, yeah, she walks in there and just took a massive shit on my my hay bed. (laughs) My hay bed. Well, hey, bud, what are we talking (laughs) about today? Well, today we're talking about Guadalcanal, a very important, one of the first battles, land battles in the Pacific theater between the U.S. and Japan. 
uh, a very cool story. I didn't know a lot about it going into this episode, but once I researched it, I was like, man, this was actually a pretty cool battle. A lot of cool stuff happened. A lot of overcoming adversity happened here, and that's what I'm all about because I'm unable to do that as a human. Crumple into a ball and cry as soon as, like, the, the smallest thing sets me back. Yeah? Yeah. Like, the other day, man, I was driving down the road, and I missed my exit, and I just leaned over the passenger seat and just started bawling my eyes out. I made the exit, actually, because everyone behind me got into a massive wreck for some reason. I don't know what their fucking problem was, but I swerved right into that fucking exit lane and out the way, and it, it worked out. But You were bawling your eyes out and still going 70. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> got places to be, man. Well, Mr. Christopher, what is our source today for this episode? As if I don't know. I know. It's for you, you fucking stupid listener. <laughs> also, thank you for listening. It's just to prove that we can read, and we do read. We do research. We don't just pull this shit off of crappy YouTube videos like some other history podcast, Dan mm-hmm. Carlin. <laughs> <laughs> Our source is Midnight in the Pacific, Guadalcanal, the World War II battle that turned the tide of war by Joseph Whelan. Okay, I really enjoyed this book. He, it was really well written. A lot of personal stories interlaced with the actual movements of troops. But we got to fucking stop this, guys. We got to stop every time we write a book about a World War II battle. It's like, well, this is the one that won the war, guys. <laughs> right here. Buy my book, please. Like, every single fucking one of them says this is the battle that turned the tide. Man, this is Joseph Wheeling and Dealing with that title. You know what I mean? <laughs> I didn't want to laugh at that. It escaped just a little <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> you gotta it up. <laughs> He's totally is. Well, and also, it's like, it's called Midnight in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And it literally takes place over five months. Right. Like, there's a <laughs> lot of midnights in there. What the fuck is he talking about? Yeah, I don't know which midnight he means, actually. Having read the book and knowing the story now, I'm like, Midnight in the Pacific. He probably just had that song about midnight at the Oasis. From the 70s stuck in his head. He's like, oh, that's a great title. I'm just do that. Change Oasis to Pacific. Boom. Nailed it. He was sipping on Mai Tais, and he's like, ooh, this would be a good title for the book. Yeah. <laughs> Living off that publisher money, you know? Oh, yeah. All oh, those sweet, sweet historical nonfiction dividends that all these authors collect, I'm sure. Just fucking rolling in the money like Scrooge no. McDuck. Come on, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> the book advance. Oh, okay. <laughs> the advance. And God. they saw that title and like, we fucking paid you for this? Midnight? No, 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 read the whole book. You'll understand what that means. And that by the time you're like five chapters in, you but forgot give me my this. last check first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like every other historical nonfiction author, I have a terrible coke addiction. And if you don't pay me now, <laughs> someone's going to come break my fucking knees. Puff the Magic Dragon's going to get very angry very quick. <laughs> well, speaking of Mr. Joseph wheeling and dealing, I'm going to wheel and deal myself right here. Mm-hmm. Guys, gals, I guess. We have a Patreon. And uh, as I'm sure you've heard, Unless this is your very first episode, which why would you subscribe to a Patreon off one episode? This because is it's stupid. so great. We should, so great. We should probably do this like once every like 
three episodes. No, or something. no. But you know what? We're gonna do it now for three dollars a month. Count them one, two, three paltry dollars, not adjusted for inflation. You know, price of everything's going up. Our Patreon staying the same exact fucking dollar amount. Okay, you get a hundred plus fucking things that the normal plebs, which you're currently a normal pleb, let's be honest, don't get. You don't want to be a normal pleb, do you? You want to be one of the cool kids. Just imagine you're walking in the mall and you see the 100 Proof History store. And it's like Abercrombie and Fitch. It's got a shirtless Greg and a shirtless Chris. And you're like, man, fuck, I want to be that. I want to be those guys. <laughs> Walk into the store, give them three bucks. You can be us. You could be part of the club. I'm done. I really like the uh, the inflation thing because for less than one singular gallon of gas, you can get like, I'm going to say like at least 50, 60 hours worth of entertainment. Or you can travel 17 miles. <laughs> Easy decision. <laughs> right. What is this, Europe? 17 miles gets you fucking nowhere in America. Come on. Yeah. Well... I think we've asked enough of these people without telling them what happened. Do you think it's maybe time to dive bomb into this story kamikaze style? Man, so topical. I'm so, so good topical. At this. So good at this. Yeah, man. You gonna start us off? Ah, As if I, I don't already know that you're going to start us off. This <laughs> hadn't been like a hundred something episodes of me going first. Yeah, it's fine. Okay, yeah, I got it. You're used to going first. Your wife talked to my wife. It's it's yeah. It's okay, Chris. <laughs> so please, go ahead. Okay, I'm going. Or should I say, no, I'm going. Okay, here, here we go. Say what you normally say. Mm, I'm gonna squirt! I'm gonna squirt! <laughs> <laughs> Weird thing is, when I orgasm in bed, I also shout out history facts. <laughs> <laughs> She's all into it. I'm like, Robert E. Lee was overrated! <laughs> <laughs> About 2,000 miles northeast of Australia sits the Solomon Islands, which is an archipelago of 900 islands that take up 11,000 square miles of the Pacific Ocean. Near the very southern end of the chain sits Guadalcanal, which at 90 miles long east to west and 25 miles north to south is the largest of the Solomon Islands. In 1942, it was almost completely covered in mountainous jungles, with the tallest peak rising to more than 7,000 feet. When it's not raining, Guadalcanal is oppressively hot and humid, and everything is a constant state of being moist. <laughs> the island features swamps filled with crocodiles, giant spiders, lizards, large land crabs, centipedes, giant wasps, leeches, rats, and malaria-carrying mosquitoes. If it sounds to you like an unimportant shithole that no one should ever visit, you should know that up until July of 1942, the U.S. military was in complete agreement with that sentiment. Button May, Button May. Hi guys, I'm Button May. Nice to meet you. <laughs> you know why they call me Button May? I don't believe in zippers. Just pop the buttons right off. Yeah. <laughs> Mommy caught me when I was younger doing something naughty, so she put a button on my butthole. <laughs> yeah, it sewed it right up. It hurt like a motherfucker. 
that hot glue got really infected. Infected like the dickens. But the dickens is why I got the button in the first place. (laughs) May, you are fucking crazy. (laughs) Yep. But in May, the Japanese had taken the Solomon Islands from the British, and on July 1st, U.S. intelligence reported that Japanese construction troops were building an airfield on the coastal plains of Guadalcanal. This would allow them to bomb transports and supply ships sailing from the U.S. to Australia, so the Americans decided they needed to capture the shithole after all. What if the shithole has a button covering it? (laughs) (laughs) That poor girl! Jesus! Why would her mom do that? I feel like she's kind of leaned into it. (laughs) That's true. She goes by Button May. (laughs) Yeah. It was the 40s. They wrote a whole song about it. Have you seen that girl named Button May? Exactly. You try to get in, but something's in the way. <laughs> a zipper would have been much more secure. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> totally. <laughs> stupid. This whole thing's stupid and I hate everything. This podcast sucks. (laughs) It does. General consensus was that the U.S. wouldn't be ready for an invasion of any occupied islands until 1943. So Major General Alexander Vandegrift, the commander of the 1st Marine Division, was understandably confused when he was ordered to attack Guadalcanal. The amphibious attack was codenamed Operation Watchtower but the Marines nicknamed it Operation Shoestring because it was just thrown together with a couple of inexperienced infantry regiments and very shaky logistics. Well, my mom called it Operation Velcro yeah. when I was younger because I was a special boy. <laughs> I don't know what's so funny about that. Well, several of these men were also special boys, and they wouldn't learn how to throw a grenade until they are already on the transport ships towards the island. It's just stupid. It's just ridiculous, man. That's wild to me, for sure. Yeah. Because it's going to blow holes in the boats, and they're going to sink throwing grenades on them. Fucking idiots. I don't think they were throwing actual grenades. I think they were probably throwing, like, potatoes or something. <laughs> you know? They're just they're going, they're clearing bunk rooms. Yeah. Like, down in the bottom. They're like, clear! And throw them in. Bunch of sleeping sailors. They just die so these guys can be trained. <laughs> that guy gets a high five. Way to go, buds. You fucking did it. Mission accomplished. Training complete. Checked off. They're ready to go. <laughs> well, general consensus finally said they're ready for battle. I believe it's brigadier general consensus. So. You know, people tried to disagree with him, but uh, he was pretty popular. That general consensus, like, everybody's like, I get along with that guy for some reason, you know, he's always got good ideas. Yeah, you know, some people loved him, some people hated him, but really he just kind of fell right in the middle. Most people just kind (laughs) of agreed with him. Yeah, pretty okay, that general, brigadier general consensus. Mm Mm-hmm. He rose up from the the ranks. He used to be second lieutenant consensus. (laughs) This episode's awesome. We're doing fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) 
Probably bullet point like four. His mom was Consuela Consensus Martinez. <laughs> why? What do you mean, why? Why? Why was... Okay. <laughs> Just because that's what her fucking name was, Chris. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be insensitive. Okay. okay. I, I need to put some respect on Brigadier General Consensus's name. He was a yes. goddamn American hero. And he, his mother. He Yes, Consuela Consensus Martinez. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And, little known fact, in addition to hastily throwing together the plan and training of the men, the Marines also weren't exactly issued the latest and greatest when it came to equipment. Instead of the semi-automatic M1 Garand rifles that the Army was issued, the Marines carried around bolt-action Springfield 03s. You know, that they used in World War I? Yeah, just 40 years old, no big deal. And although some of those Marines had been issued the fancy new steel M1 helmet, there weren't enough to go around, so a whole lot of Marines had to go into battle wearing antique WW1-style doughboy helmets. On July 31st, 1942, 82 warships carrying 19,000 Marines and 234 aircraft loaded up and left their all-inclusive resorts in Fiji and headed for Guadalcanal and a few smaller islands that sat near it. In the early morning hours of August 7th, the Marines approached the northern beaches of Guadalcanal. At 9 a.m., the 5th Marines hit the beaches in their Higgins boats, charged the shore, raced to a low ridge 100 yards off the coast, and dug in and prepared for enemy machine gun and artillery fire. Here it comes. Here comes the counterattack. We're getting fucked up. It's Omaha Beach before Omaha Beach. Death awaits. Are you ready to die? Do you want to live forever, you sons of bitches? This is going to be pure pandemonium. I can feel it. I can feel it in my fucking bones. My history bones, Chris. Yep. Well, Greg, the only thing that greeted them was absolute silence. Spare for a few very startled parrots. Well, like I said, Chris, pandemonium. Can you imagine? <laughs> you have all this shit running through your head, and you land on a beach, and it's fucking silent. Imagine the stuff that's rattling around in these guys' brains. They thought they were going to have to fight, and, you know, maybe... 50 to 70% of them would die, and then all of a sudden they're all safe and sound? Like, dude, that's got to fuck with them. Yeah. Pandemonium. Sometimes it's worse to think that death might not be coming than to think it is coming. At least I've experienced that in my personal life. Like, I'm never going to die. This is fucking terrible. You know? <laughs> Okay. I have to deal with this for another 40 fucking years? Are you kidding me? We basically need to give you a, a purple heart, in all <laughs> you honesty. Do. You deserve it. It may have been a little confusing for them, too, because I bet those parrots were all speaking Japanese, because those who the guys who were occupying the island. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. I was like, oh, shit, they're everywhere. They're fucking everywhere. They're in the trees. And you just open up, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, rather than fight... The Marines started gathering coconuts, despite ridiculous warnings from one idiot sergeant that the Japanese might have poisoned them. But what if he was right? What if... That's the basis of my new uh, historical fiction book, by the way. If I Did It? <laughs> yeah. By O.J. Simpson? <laughs> yeah. 
OJ's just down on the island just injecting strychnine straight into the coconuts. These fucking dumb bitches, they don't know what's coming now. They all slept with my blonde wife. They deserve it. <laughs> no, I, I don't think you guys under, understand. When I said poisoned, look in the side of the coconuts. There's a clearly penis-sized hole in all of these coconuts. <laughs> These guys have been on this island a long time. That's what I mean. No, you can eat them and be fine, but I don't know why you would. <laughs> Who's the idiot now? Real talk, I do love the, the idea of this guy's like, they poisoned the coconuts. There's like fucking millions of coconuts on this beach. Maybe not millions, but thousands. Like they just went one by one, poison them just in case someone landed there and ate them. That was his mindset. Fucking idiot. That's my grandpa, by the way. Which one? The the one who thought the coconuts were poisoned and took off his pants and ran to the ocean screaming. <laughs> oh, all right. What a fucking American hero. <laughs> he got a section eight. He got sent home. Yeah. <laughs> Lucky bastard. <laughs> World War One. they were having to shoot themselves in the foot. Quote, accidentally. You're right. This guy can just, you know. They're caving all the coconuts. Ah! <laughs> Splashing into the water. And he gets to go home and. <laughs> Furiously masturbating into the ocean. His mom gets letters that all his brothers are dying one by one in the war. And he's just sitting at home churning butter. And she's like, oh, God, I wish you would have died yes. with them. Yeah. Yes, mama. <laughs> <laughs> will, will you reattach my Velcro? <laughs> the first Marines landed shortly after the 5th and pushed further inland. Their goal was the airfield that the Japanese were building. Their map said it was just a thousand yards past the beach, but in reality it was eight miles over ridges and mountains and they quickly realized they weren't going to make it there that day. On the small neighboring islands of Gavutu and Tanabongo, the Marines had a rougher time landing and capturing the hills that dominated the islands. They would wind up killing 500 Japanese soldiers and losing 157 of their own, including Private First Class Eddie Ahrens, who single-handedly held off an attack on the Marines' flank and took out 13 Japanese soldiers before being mortally wounded. When he was found, he gave his captain the sword of a Japanese officer and said, quote, Those guys tried to come over me last night. Not the way you're thinking. They, they just tried to make it past me. Anyway, I guess they didn't know I was a Marine. Ugh, I'm dying death sounds. End real quote. Classic death rattle. He did die, and it was awarded the Navy Cross. Oh. Well, it was worth it then. <laughs> totally, yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, his fucking mom brought it up every time somebody came over for dinner. Well, that, that empty seat's for my boy, Eddie. He won the Navy Cross. I'm like, God damn it, it's 1989, we know. <laughs> <laughs> she overhears her, like, great-grandchild say to, you know, the friend down the street... No, I, I swear, I cross my heart and hope to die. Well, you don't Navy cross your heart. <laughs> Only Eddie did that. 
Makes the little boy cry. (laughs) Your cross ain't worth shit. Look at this Navy cross. You're a pussy eight-year-old great-grandson. Get your life together and go fight the Japs. It's like, great-grandma, you're senile. You're 120, and we're friends with the Japanese now. They're sending cars here. You know, we're doing this whole... No, you go over there. You, You don't come back unless you come back on your shield or something. I don't know. I watched the movie 300. I know it didn't come out for like... 20-something more years. I don't give a shit. Navy Cross! Woo! <laughs> his, uh, his grandmother, his great-grandmother was Ric Flair, in case anybody was wondering. <laughs> Great wrestler, Ric Flair. Oh. The main objective of the landings in the offensive was the airfield, which the first Marines took on August 8th without so much as firing a shot. The airfield wasn't complete, but in their haste to avoid conflict with the Marines, the Japanese had abandoned all of the equipment and supplies to get it done. Meanwhile, back on the small landing beach, there was a traffic jam of ships, causing the unloading of supplies to take longer than expected. After receiving reports that the Japanese fighters and bombers were attacking other ships in the area, Rear Admiral (laughs) Richmond Turner decided to leave after only unloading about half of the food and supplies. He told Major General Vandegrift it was because he needed refuel, but Vandegrift knew how much fuel was left, and he also knew Turner was just being a little punk-ass bitch. I, I gotta go to the gas station. You know, we all know, we all have that friend. As soon as it gets to half tank, they're like, oh fuck, I gotta find somewhere to stop, guys. Gotta refuel. We're gonna be driving for a while. Man, we're just going like five minutes. We're going to the fucking mall. Like we don't have to stop and get gas, but that was this dude, you know? Just abandoning all his marine buddies to go get more gas. Probably afraid Joe Biden was gonna raise the prices of them again. Fucking asshole. Again? <laughs> I don't understand how this old man controls the entire world market on gas prices. <laughs> Not just the US, but every country in the entire fucking world. Ah, oh, I hate him. Well, I didn't vote for him, so obviously everything's bad in my life. It's his fucking fault, piece of shit. I'm not <laughs> That night, a small fleet of Japanese ships entered the water near Savo Island, which sits just north of Guadalcanal. There, they found an unsuspecting Allied fleet that was disorganized and unfamiliar with nighttime fighting. The Japanese attacked and sank four heavy cruisers and damaged three other ships without losing any ships of their own. 1,077 Allied sailors were killed in the attack, and multiple sailors that were awaiting rescue were eaten alive by sharks that were accustomed to eating human flesh because the natives followed a long tradition of setting their dead adrift in the sea. Once you get that taste of man meat, you cannot go back. Hmm. Think I know what you mean. Yeah. Hambone told me a, a thing or two. <laughs> it's just all these poor sailors are fucking dying, and Chris wants to make jokes. But the reality of the situation was there was just that, that horrible, just distant fire sound, and you. And there's just this little fucking hand barely <laughs> treading water with googly eyes over it. You're like, oh, I'm going to get you. Yes, I am. <laughs> and he just starts fucking 
pulling these sailors down by their dicks, just, I'll give it to me. I'll give it to It's Hambone, for those not familiar. Yes. He was, uh, the episode where he was also in the water, Chris? The USS Indianapolis episode. Mm-hmm. Where we first heard that now famous phrase, Give me that hawk! Yeah, the guy's a man obsessed. Yeah, there's something wrong with him. White meat, dark meat of the thigh, like mm-hmm. you were saying. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter, as long as it's cock meat. Man. <laughs> Let's be honest, it's cock meat. <laughs> okay, fair enough. The guy's sick. Yeah, I'm sorry to laugh, because it's it's awful. For all new listeners, this is a uh, a hand. He's a disembodied soul that just kind of takes people over. Mm-hmm. May, may or may not be a very stupid joke that goes all the way back to a Halloween episode featuring Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't know. No, it's not that. But um, <laughs> he traverses through space-time, and he just uh, he possesses different entities. And in this situation, he is obviously... Possessed a shark hand. <laughs> yeah, man, yeah, there's plenty of those in the Pacific. Shark hands. Lots of... Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> just as a heads up. It's sad. I don't have a clue why Chris is laughing right now, but I'm sorry. we'll continue with the story. Hambone got his, and Chris is obviously a Hambone sympathizer. I, so. I was just thinking of a joke that Hambone told me earlier about hogs and man meat. It's not important. Let's continue. Please. Well, with the Navy gone, the Marines were now without naval support, air support, and only had half of the supplies they intended to bring. Vandegrift knew that the key to surviving was finishing off and defending the airfield. He quickly set up a perimeter in the hills around the airfield and ordered the Marines to finish the job. The Japanese continuously bombarded the area with naval artillery, but on August 12th, the airfield was finished. They named it Henderson Airfield after Major Lofton Henderson, who had been killed in the Battle of Midway earlier that year. But the Japanese weren't just going to lie back and take it, like some helpless woman in a schoolgirl's outfit being attacked by a horny monster that uses its tentacles like a human penis. Jesus. Japan, you know, I just want to tie it into Uh their culture, you know. Hentai came up real quick. (laughs) On August 19th, Colonel Kionao Ichiki and the first echelon landed on the western tip of Guadalcanal, about 20 miles away from Henderson Field. Ichiki had proven himself in repeated victories against the Chinese, and he believed if he bum-rushed the U.S. Marines, he'd have similar success. So, rather than waiting for the 1,300 men, artillery, and anti-tank weapons coming with the second echelon, Ichiki and his 917 men of the first set out for Henderson Airfield. Now, this could have been a disaster for the Americans had it not been for a native scout named Jacob Vuza. And this guy's kind of a fucking badass. Just wait for this story. It's just crazy. So we tease him. That's how we keep him listening in the next 40 seconds. Mm, They're mm. like, oh, I was going to check out right then, but he said, this guy's a badass, so I got to, like, stick in. I got to stay here. That's when you're, like, whining and dining and... Kind of work your way down there. You kiss that inner thigh, and then maybe just graze the penis with your cheek. (laughs) 
Sir, this is a PTA meeting. What are you doing? I want my kid to be in the good classes. I'm sorry. <laughs> he let you get all the way down to taking khakis and underwear off. <laughs> yeah. And doing that before he's like, oh, no, sir, <laughs> sir, my wife is watching. There's 40 people in this room. Call me later. <laughs> we'll talk about the gifted and talented program. <laughs> he's laying on the desk as he sits up. He like, he had some gas built up, so he poots a bit. <laughs> it makes it even more embarrassing for him, not you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> he still got the Oxford button up with the tie on, glasses, <laughs> pantsless, sits up in boots, 40 fucking other PTA members. Anyway, that's never happened to me. That's never happened to me. That's how Greg lost tenure and had to start a history podcast. <laughs> anyway, Jacob Vuza, badass. As the Cheeky's men were marching through the jungle, Vuza spotted them. He was captured, repeatedly stabbed in the throat, abdomen, and chest with a bayonet, and was left for dead. He managed to crawl through the jungle to the U.S. Marine front line and warn the men that hundreds of Japanese soldiers were coming their way. And he survived the wounds. American hero. I mean, he's not from America, and we would never let him in this country because, you know, they take our jobs and. Just sign for welfare and stuff, you know, and we should build a wall, but still, American hero. Hell yeah. Like all those CIs in Afghanistan where, well, let's just say one of our presidents released a shit ton of prisoners mm-hmm. that had uh, direct links to Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Yeah. And also released information that exposed a lot of those CIs that were trying to get out of the country, and they all got fucking murdered and their families died too. <laughs> <laughs> like that. God damn. You brought this room down. Whole fucking room turned into an elevator. Going to the basement. Fuck thing. this room. <laughs> well, as a result of Vuza's warnings, the Marines heavily fortified the western area of their perimeter, known as Alligator Creek. The Japanese arrived at 3.10 a.m. on August 21st. They shouted things like, Prepare to die! And fuck Babe Ruth! And streamed across the sandbar that separated the creek from the ocean and ran right into barbed wire where they were cut down by 75mm howitzer artillery and 30 caliber machine gun fire. That's right, you don't talk shit about Babe Ruth. Fucking amazing candy bar with the nougat and the peanuts. It's just so fucking good. Not in my house. No? Not in my Guadalcanal house. <laughs> you don't say that shit. No. Over the following 16 hours, 813 of the 917 soldiers in the first echelon were killed. Humiliated by his defeat, Colonel Achiki burned his regimental flag and shot himself in the head. It was here that most of the Marines were first exposed to the fanaticism of the Japanese soldiers who believed that surrender was the most dishonorable outcome of any battle. Wounded Japanese soldiers would cry out for help, and when Marine medics, known as corpsmen, came to provide aid, the Japanese soldier would shoot or stab the medic. Other soldiers would find new and exciting ways to kill themselves to avoid capture. Private 
super outdated name, Whitey Groft, observed this personally and later wrote, quote, There is a grotesque horror in watching a man activate a grenade and then clutch it to his chest, blowing himself apart before your astonished eyes. End quote. Yeah, I definitely believe that, but these guys didn't have the internet. You know what I mean? (laughs) I grew up watching shit like this. I know. They never found Rotten.com or Live League. Which is why I'm also nominating me for three Purple Hearts. Oh, nice. The mental damage that... I, Dude, I gave myself PTSD as a child watching this shit. I've seen the horrors of war from behind a <laughs> computer screen. And now I'm shaking underneath a, a, a bed, <laughs> unable to function in society. So, I'm, I'm, dude, I'm scarred. Even before I, I joined the military, mm-hmm. I went to the VA when I was like 15 <laughs> years old. And I was like, you guys need to fucking treat me. This is bullshit. I have PTSD. What from? Twitter. Fucking Twitter is killing me, man. These fucking assholes argue with everything. Oh, yeah. That is a cesspool of shit. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. I guess it ain't so bad. <laughs> now, the Japanese who were captured, they kind of immediately backtracked on all their super indoctrinated thinking and would say things like, Roosevelt, good man. Tojo, eat shit. End quote. Those are actual quotes. I didn't make that up. Over the following days and weeks, U.S. fighters and bombers began arriving at Henderson Airfield. The American fighter plane, the Grumman F-4F Wildcat, was vastly inferior to the Japanese Mitsubishi Zero, so the American pilots were instructed to avoid dogfights and instead to target Japanese bombers. Now, fortunately for the Americans, the nearest Japanese airfields were so far away the planes couldn't stay over the island for long periods of time. As a result, the Japanese would attack the airfield every day between 11 in the morning and 1 in the afternoon. Marines came to call it Tojo time and got used to spending lunchtime in their bomb shelters while U.S. pilots attempted to take out Japanese bombers. Just in there eating their Lunchables, you know, just making their little cracker cheese, ham sandwiches, just waiting for the bombs to stop dropping. Then you have the, like, weird ones that like the newbies, the you know, seventeen year olds, they'd be doing the pizza lunchable. You can't like, eat it what up. The fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> Come on, man. Or the chicken nuggets? Where are you gonna microwave that idiot? Wait. Is that really a thing? Yeah, they're they're nuggy lunchables. Yeah. Are you <laughs> The pizza ones were after my time, but it was like wait, these were already just fucking meat cheese and cracker then yeah. you go to pizza they went a step beyond yeah they went to nuggies just cold chicken nuggets with some little like crackers to go with them and you know like a little Reese's peanut butter cup that always melts and deforms every day we stray further from God's life <laughs> every day on August 24th The U.S. aircraft carriers Enterprise and Saratoga were a part of a fleet returning to the Solomon Islands at the exact same time a Japanese fleet of 58 ships was doing the exact same thing. Now, although these fleets were nearly 200 miles apart, 
planes from both of them spotted their enemies and simultaneous attacks were launched. The Enterprise suffered massive damage and had to be taken back to Pearl Harbor, but the Japanese got it worse and lost several ships and about 300 sailors. That's because Captain Jean-Luc Picard was there. And he was able to, like, save the day, you know. Deflect the shields at the right time. Get his former Borg allies to show up. Take out the Romulans so he could escape back to Hawaii, as he was known to do. Worf was just walking around in a thong, distracting fucking <laughs> everybody. And so the U.S. sailors were able to pick off a lot of Japanese just because they were witnessing that. Like, what the fuck is this? That thong was barely holding that giant ridged penis. It's like, what is oh, happening? His penis looks like his actual head? <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. For uh, her pleasure. Never thought about that. Yeah. yeah. Human race probably didn't want to in- interact with them too much, you know. They'd lose too many <laughs> of their women with those ribbed penises. But Space Hambone was all about it. You fucking love that shit. No, oh, you got blisters from that shit. <laughs> All those ridges. Just, <laughs> oh, my, my inside of my mouth is just worn out. It's like a cheese grater. Hambone, it's not the inside of your mouth. It's my fucking hand. <laughs> well, same, same. <laughs> Will you please leave me? Possess somebody else. <laughs> That's my John Luke Picard impersonation, by the way. That was very good. I liked it. Still, with the Enterprise out of the way, the Japanese believed the Americans wouldn't have enough firepower to defend Guadalcanal. They pressed on with a landing force that was met by American bombers launched from Henderson Field. In the ensuing battle, the slow-moving Japanese cruisers and transport ships were decimated by the Americans, and they were forced to withdraw without landing a single troop. From that point on, every Japanese landing was done at night, by fast-moving destroyers. And so, in the last week of August and the first couple of weeks of September, the battle fell into sort of a pattern. Since the Marines lacked naval support, the Japanese spent the nighttime blasting the airfield with naval guns and landing troops on the western tip of the island. And since the Japanese couldn't fly during the day, outside of Tojo time, the Americans controlled the air during that time and kept the Japanese Navy from landing troops and supplies. If the Japanese wanted to dislodge the Americans from the island, they're going to have to capture the airfield, and the only way to do that was with boots on the ground. Japanese leadership called off other campaigns in the Pacific and decided to focus all of their energy on Guadalcanal. The Marines were desperately low on supplies, and more and more aircraft were lost every day in aerial battles. The fiercest fighting of the Battle of Guadalcanal was yet to come. On my chest. (laughs) Yep. Uh, So anyway, let's let's take a break there. We'll come back and see what happens with that fiercest fighting. And uh, see who comes out on top of Greg's chest. Alright, welcome back from break. Hope you enjoyed it. That 10 seconds probably flew by for you guys, but we've been gone for like 8 hours. Just drinking the whole time. 
trading war stories about what our uncles did to us when we became young adults at the tender age of 18. You know, just living life, just having a good time. But uh, I think I think it might be time to get back into this story and, you know, like really dive into what happened. And this big battle, this big turning point of World War II, you know, I, I don't think we need to readdress this old trauma we've been talking about for the last few hours. Purple hearts and purple farts. <laughs> and horseshoes. I don't know why that's relevant at all. I said farts, though. So. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> got him. I was going to turn it into a Lucky Charms joke. Talk about how lucky he had Purple Hearts, because he was part of the Irish Brigades that fought in D-Day, but you know, it's fine. We need to move past that. We need to start talking about Guadalcanal again, but before we can do that, we have to do this traditional thing we do. We've been drinking a lot of whiskey, we're feeling it, we're having a good time. Maybe we need something to just, like, help us maintain, but not really mess us up. And for that, we go to... Our second half seltzers. Second half seltzer. Second half seltzer. Second half seltzer. All right, let's all collectively pop our tops in three, two, one. Alrighty. That is so refreshing. It makes me feel alive. I can tell by the nipple tassels that you're currently <laughs> twirling. <laughs> Well, I am excited. It's mostly because of the seltzer, but also because you, Gregory, main host, the most sexiest of mustachioed men, are ready to tell us the second half of this story about Guadalcanal. So do that. Now. Well, Guadalcanal had become what military historians refer to as a meeting engagement. Like Gettysburg and the U.S. Civil War, there was very little value in Guadalcanal itself. Sure, the Japanese could use it to harass ships traveling between the U.S. and Australia, and the Americans could use it as a jumping-off point in the Solomon Islands, but there were several other places that both sides could achieve those same objectives. Yet, over the last few months of 1942, both sides would continue to pour resources into the battle. On August 31st, Major General Kiyotaki Kawaguchi was given the mission of capturing Henderson Airfield. And, you know, this is a pretty high-profile general. Yeah? You know, he had the the little things you'd played with in middle school <laughs> where you could, uh, you know, keep the pets alive. You had to, like, feed them, take care of them, all that. So, yep. <laughs> that's this guy. Tamaguchi for all our 14-year-old listeners, but yes. <laughs> That's what I said, Kawaguchi. <laughs> anyway, Kawaguchi believed that there were only a few thousand Americans on the island, and he was confident that his 5,000-man brigade could join up with another 600-man brigade and wipe out the Marines. He had no accurate maps of the island and had no scouts, but he said his men were infected with victory fever. I think it was chlamydia, to be honest. <laughs> They kept clapping. <laughs> he was so confident that he'd win that before the battle, he packed his white dress uniform and wrote down how he planned on accepting U.S. Major General Vandergriff's sword in a surrender ceremony. Put it in my mouth, General. <laughs> 
Well, I'm sorry. He was Japanese. He was Japanese. Uh huh. Put it in my mouth, General. <laughs> I, I think that's how Japanese language goes. Vandergriff's is like, I'm surrendering to you, but you want me to put the sword down on my waist level, and you, you will face execution if you do not comply. <laughs> okay. I want to show you what you are missing out on. <laughs> <laughs> Tamaguchi Kawaguchi and his men landed on Guadalcanal on September 8th. Unbeknownst to him, a group of marine raiders got word of the landing and launched a nighttime amphibious attack. As Kawaguchi's men were hacking a road through the jungle with machetes... <laughs> The marines landed on the beach and began to capture and destroy Kawaguchi's supplies. Say machetes. What are you, mad? Because I know authentic Japanese language? <laughs> um, machetes. I, a little bit. I have been tricked by several trips to Benihana into thinking that's not how they speak at all. But I'm going to trust you, authentic history podcast main host. Thank you. The Japanese rear guard attacked, but the marines made quick work of them by using flares and smoke to mark targets for bombers from Henderson Field. Before withdrawing, the Marines captured Kawaguchi's personal stash, including his dress whites and his surrender ceremony plans. <laughs> well, when the dress uniform and the <laughs> surrender ceremony plans were given to Major General Vandegrift, he remarked, It would have been kind of embarrassing as I forgot to bring my sword with me. Oh, you. I didn't know General Vandegrift was the basis of Nicolas Cage's character in Con Air. But fucking nailed it. Why don't you just put the bunny back in the box? <laughs> <laughs> the Raiders had also captured a ton of enemy notes and charts, and it looked to them as if the Japanese were planning on attacking Henderson from the south on a ridge overlooking the airfield. Vandegrift disagreed and thought the attack would once more come near Alligator Creek. The colonel of the raiders, Merritt Red Mike Edson, was all like, Okay, well, my men are tired, so I'll probably just have them set up on that ridge for some rest. While doing finger quotes around rest because he thought Vandegrift was an idiot. <laughs> I love this badass American Marine got that voice. Like, you, you always picture, what was his uh, name from Full Metal Jacket? Uh, Arlie Army. Arlie Army, yeah. You picture him as a Marine. Like, you would suck a golf ball through two feet of garden hose. You know, that kind of guy. But I love I love your impersonation because it's probably more re realistic. You know, that's, that's just who this We throat cancer like. and that's why he <laughs> sounds like that. So it's kind of fucked up and ableist of you. Well, Vandergrift approved it as long as the raiders cleaned themselves up because he said they were looking like a bunch of Elizabethan pirates. Which is kind of weird, you know, you hear somebody talk like that and they bring up Elizabethan pirates. <laughs> He's a learned man. <laughs> he is a learned man. What is Elizabethan pirate, Greg? History, mean host. From the Elizabethan age of English history? God damn it, I thought I had you, had you against the ropes. And all yeah, of a sudden, your, cl your classic fucking the pirate age. The pirate age wasn't that long. <sighs> God damn it! I thought I, I had you cornered, and you just fucking no, rockied you me. 
And you punched the fucking mic while you did it. So you look like an extra fool. (laughs) (laughs) At 9 p.m. on September 12th, the Japanese destroyers bombarded the airfield and the ridge above it in preparation for Kawaguchi's attack. Unfortunately for him, the god-awful jungle conditions had slowed down his advance and his men weren't in position yet. Only one battalion was in place, and they attacked the far end of the ridge where Company C of Edson's raiders were positioned. They inflicted some casualties on the Marines, but they were ultimately driven back. The next morning, Japanese pilots were shot down over Henderson because they believed that Kawaguchi had already captured it. At the same time, Edson moved his men further back on the ridge and set up an open field of fire for his machine guns and artillery. Vandegrift still refused to believe that Japanese would attack the ridge and only gave Edson a few more Marines to defend his position. When darkness fell, Kawaguchi told his men, You must put the enemy to rout and crush them by daybreak. The time has come for you to give your lives for the emperor. The Japanese marched towards the ridge, chanting, U.S. Marine be dead tomorrow, (laughs) as they slapped their rifle butts in harmony. U.S. Marine be dead tomorrow. We're gonna kill you fellows be sorrowed. Yeah, we're Japanese, coming from the south to shoot your knees. Yeah! <laughs> yep. I think that was actually historically accurate. Thank you. I read a lot of books. <laughs> the Japanese launched their main assault at 10.30. The Marines were greatly outnumbered, but the delay by Kawaguchi and the tactical moves of Edson tilted the battle in the Marines' favor. Machine guns cut the Japanese to ribbons, and 105mm artillery rained down on them as they moved up the ridge. They struggled throughout the night, and as day broke, fighters from Henderson Field strafed the Japanese soldiers that were still advancing towards Marine positions. Kawaguchi was forced to retreat back to the Matanakau River on the northwest corner of the island after suffering 800 dead and 1,000 wounded. Kawaguchi had been so confident in his victory that he had ordered his men to consume all their rations before the attack. As a result, the wounded collapsed along his march back to the river, and the survivors were so weak that they abandoned their weapons and equipment and left their wounded comrades to die on the trail. One survivor described this in a poem when he wrote, quote, Flies swarm to the scabs, no strength to brush them away. Fall down, cannot move. How many times I've thought of suicide. In quote of a <laughs> Japanese soldier. Fucking Stonewall Jackson from the Japanese side. Stonewall Jack Thon. <laughs> Shocked by their defeats, the leaders of the Japanese military decided to double down on their efforts to recapture Guadalcanal. The plan simply known as Plan X, real creative, called for a multi-pronged amphibious attack from 22,000 infantrymen supported by tanks and artillery launched from destroyers that continued to operate freely during the night. And that was the, the story throughout this entire battle, was the U.S. did not know how to operate in the nighttime hours, and the Japanese did. That's why, you know, after the U.S. initially took 
Henderson Field that the Japanese came in and just fucking wrecked shop in the sea was because the U.S. was caught completely off guard, did not know how to fight naval battles at night at all. And it continued to be the case. And it's so weird because the Japanese did not have surface radar and the Americans did. I don't know if they were over-reliant on it or what happened. You're right. They could not fight at nighttime. The Japanese would sneak right into their formations and start sinking shit with torpedoes. And there was nothing they could do about it. As far as the naval battle goes, Guadalcanal was a loss for the Americans. But, uh, I don't know, maybe something different was going to happen on land. I think it definitely was a win for the U.S. navally as well. Because the Japanese lost a ton of shit. Yeah. At first, the Japanese were definitely winning the naval battle, not the land battle. But, I mean, the U.S. ended up sinking several of their carriers of which they had way less than we did at the time. And so that battle of attrition was not working out for them. And that's, I think you're right there when you said battle of attrition. I think, uh, I'd have to go back and do the math. I think the U.S. actually lost more ships during the battle of Guadalcanal than the Japanese did. But the U.S. could replace them and repair them a lot better than the Japanese could, just based on resources and industry and stuff like that because Japan relied incredibly on American oil and steel and they couldn't produce that but the Americans could and they could like the Enterprise is going to be wounded twice during this battle and repaired Saratoga's going to be sunk another carrier's going to be sunk and it's but they could replace that stuff very quickly yeah but then Japan had those two sister ships that ended up two sister carriers that ended up getting sunk I mean they lost a lot. They did lose a lot. They couldn't replace it, and that was the big difference. They had no way of replacing that. Because they didn't have the supply line secured, which... <gasps> what do you know? Shipping lanes. Guadalcanal. Boom. Important battle. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Somebody should do a podcast about that. They really should. Well, uh... Old General Vandergriff learned of the buildup of Japanese forces west of the Matanikau and decided to launch an attack. This force was led by Lieutenant Colonel Lewis Chesty Puller. Ooh. So up top action from old Chesty. Yeah. yeah. Back before I realized my true preferences, you know, I used to go to the MILF bar and I used to be a Chesty Puller. <laughs> <laughs> I'd get back to my house and I'd be like, hey, why don't you strap this on? <laughs> Let's have a little fun. I'm like, what? That's, that's not really what I was expecting. And I was like, hey, I'm full of the unexpected. Yeah. And I'm about to be full of the very much expected. Kelsey Grammer's just jerking off with one hand and playing tossed salad and scrambled eggs with the other. So you guys are. Making sweet, sweet love. Sweet, sweet MILF love from the jazz bar. Who's the MILF? The <laughs> lady you brought home with the strap okay. on. He's just playing music. <laughs> He's just playing music. He's okay. like, I get off at 1.30, guys. What are you guys doing? I'm like, well, come hang He's out. He's just singing the Frasier theme song over and over. Over and over again. Okay. Okay. Oh, he slow strokes it in the corner. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, Niles is standing in the corner, slow stroking. Like, I don't know what's happening. Ooh, I right? want to get pegged. I want to get pegged. <laughs> the dad and the dog are just judging everybody. Little dog's just jumping all over the bed trying to sniff on the... Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Quit looking at my asshole. God damn and this was only two years ago, so the dad is actually dead. It's just his mummified corpse in the corner. <laughs> this is a very weird situation. I'm it's, not going to lie. It's gotten... The wheels have fallen off of this situation, but it's still kind of sexy, if you think about it. I mean, weird shit happens when Kelsey Grammer is supplying all the coke, you know? <laughs> uh, anyway, where were we? Oh, uh, Chesty Puller. Fuck. At first, it didn't go great, and Puller was forced to withdraw in an orderly fashion just to keep three of his companies from being wiped out completely. In doing so, he moved his men to a ridge that surrounded a large battalion of Japanese soldiers. They then proceeded to wipe out pretty much the entire battalion, well over 600 Japanese men, before retreating to a U.S. ship that took them back to Henderson Field. The Marines were begging for reinforcements and resupply, and in the last week of September, the Navy finally agreed to give them that. This resulted in yet another naval battle when Japanese and American forces met while both were bringing troops and supplies to the island. In what became known as the Battle of Cape Esperance, the U.S. took out several Japanese ships and lost only one, but both sides were successful in unloading their troops. There was Greg with that both sides hashtag again. Fucking just play in the middle, ride in the fence, take a side, Greg. That's all I'm saying. Take the side of history. Yeah. January 6th with a dust-up. That's what you told me. Just a minor little <laughs> tourist. Uh, they just didn't pay the fees for the, the tour of the Capitol. That's all yeah. it was. What about all those BLM riots in, in all those other cities during 2020, huh? How about that? What about those things that were uh, municipal issues that should have been prosecuted at a, a city or state level compared to the possible <laughs> overthrow of our democracy itself? Huh? huh? How are those not the fucking same thing? <laughs> you fucking idiots. <laughs> By the start of October, the U.S. had 23,000 soldiers on Guadalcanal compared to Japan's 20,000. Plan X kicked off in the early morning hours of October 14th, when Japanese planes marked Henderson Field with flares and the ships unleashed the longest and largest bombardment of the battle thus far. Over 900 shells were fired at the airfield, destroying 48 aircraft, wiping out most of the aviation fuel while killing 41 Marines, and it wrecked the shit out of the runways. The Marines were ordered to dig in. Expecting an immediate attack, Major Robert Balance told his men, Forget about the dying business. <laughs> you can't live forever. Think instead about killing. If die we must, we'll do it with our boots on. And our face to the Japs, <laughs> which do not agree with calling them Japs, okay? Not the proper nomenclature. First of all, his name, obviously, was Robert Balancé. Oh, yeah, I, I did say Balancé. Balancé. Balancé! <laughs> and he was actually one of the Italian-American immigrants that started the mob that the movie The Godfather was based on. People don't know that. It's just what 
that's what little extra things we provide to you. I feel like that is a completely made up fact. No, this guy, like he put oranges in his mouth, cut like teeth into him to scare his grandchild. And then he died before his son took over the family business and killed his brother. Too obscure. No. (laughs) Surely these motherfuckers have seen the Godfather. Come on. I don't think so. I don't think so. Godfather wanted two cinematic masterpieces. They're nine years old, Chris. (laughs) They've only seen three and they're like, this is shit. Well, if that's all they saw, they're right. Yeah, that was a terrible The fucking movie. helicopter. Ugh. He Don't wanted to get hook- me started. The Mamma Mia. Michael wanted his son wanted to hook up with the cousin. It's a weird thing. It's a very strange thing. But I don't the even first remember two. that. <laughs> so good. Anyway. <laughs> so yeah, with Plan X being kicked off, all these massive shells being fired at the airfield, Marines, they're dug in, right? But the Japanese didn't immediately attack. Their troops were once again stuck in the jungle, moving slowly and attempting to cut a road for their tanks and artillery using machetes. The heat, combined with the shitty mud road cut over the mountain ridges, led to the Japanese abandoning a great deal of their artillery pieces, and they had to move their plans for an infantry attack all the way back to October 24th, which was 10 days after Plan X initially started. Yeah, and it's it's very strange... It's very similar to the World War I battles, except it's a much longer timeline where they'd fire all this artillery. So you knew something was coming. It's like we talked about just a few minutes ago where the Marines dug in like, hey, they're coming. We just got bombarded. Here it comes. Let's get ready. And that was kind of the Japanese idea where we bombard, we rush attack, they won't be ready. And it was very outdated by this point, where the Marines have been there for months, and they've set up all these defensive positions, all these fields of fire, all that. So even if they had come on October 14th, it probably wouldn't have defeat. But waiting for 10 days, that's just crazy. And things aren't going to go great for the Japanese, as Greg is about to tell you. You don't know that. I don't. I don't know anything. Well, this 10-day delay... It allowed the Americans to fix the runway, bring in more planes and fuel, and improve their defensive positions even more. But General Tadashi Sumiyoshi, who was leading the Japanese tanks through the jungle, he didn't uh, he didn't get that memo, and instead attacked uh, he attacked a day before, on October twenty third. Yeah, he uh, he got that memo from Corbett, but he put it right into the special filing cabinet he has for corporate memos it's a trash can Greg oh I was hoping you were going to be like the one that goes (laughs) he looks around at all his uh, employees his subordinates he's like (laughs) corporate am I right yeah fuck those guys (laughs) that's what happens when you try to be a man of the people in a corporate environment it's like okay well this guy's fucking fired (laughs) no you gotta treat your people like shit yeah. Yeah. Middle management is the <laughs> worst. It's awful. Get shit on from both directions. And if you're not into that thing, you're not into being shit on, it's it's just the worst. Yes. All right. Well, thank you for the support, main host. Yeah, you better thank me. Because <laughs> you don't deserve it, Chris. You don't deserve my support. I'm just kidding. I love you, baby. Don't go. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know the other the other guys are the other hosts are going to treat you so much worse. Mm-hmm. I value you, just because I yell sometimes. Just because you know you know my anger, it gets away from me. It gets away from me. It's not you. I I know it's me, but it's just because I love you so much as a co-host. <laughs> so just give me another chance. I feel like you've practiced this before. Like I'm not the first one who's heard this speech about. How your dad would lose at Frogger and slap you around, and that's just how you were raised. I will fucking kill you, bitch. Shut up, (laughs) co-host. Well, as uh, General Sumiyoshi's (laughs) tanks attempted to uh, cross the sandbar that ran across the Matanakau River, a Marine knocked out the treads of the lead tank with a hand grenade. What a fucking hero. If you're on the U.S. side, if you're on the U.S. side, which we are impartial. Yes. Impartial hosts. But holy shit, dude. Like, there's this giant convoy coming towards you in the very lead tank. A single dude throws a grenade and detreads a tank, and mm-hmm. it it stops the whole thing. <laughs> what a bad bitch, you know? Now, you, you say we're impartial, but... We're doing this over like a Zoom type app where you can see me and behind me. You can 100% see that TV that has a music video of Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA on our loop. And so you know, Greg, you know that I'm proud to be an American. At least I know I'm free. And I won't forget men like this guy who threw a grenade and blasted that tread. They gave that right to me. All right, guys, I, I know you all heard that mute button that I just did. Chris was about to start going into his God Bless America thing, and I just, I had to do it. So, lead tank, completely fucking taken out because of a single hand grenade. Marine artillery then decimated the tanks as they became stuck in a traffic jam. About 600 Japanese soldiers were waiting on one side of the river for the tanks to make it across. While they waited, Marine artillery zeroed in on them and wiped every single one of them out. The next day, during a torrential downpour, the main attack launched along the American perimeter with the Japanese shouting, Blood for the Emperor! Marine, you die! God, so badass. I know, I know, it's the enemy. I'm American. Their enemy, but that's again, we're impartial crews. <laughs> Fair enough, but that's that's such a badass thing to shout. I doubt they sounded like that. Blood for the Emperor. This time the Americans responded by shouting, Blood for Franklin and Eleanor. The Japanese charged right into fields of fire that were incredibly organized. So many of them died that Marines had to leave their firing positions to knock down piles of Japanese corpses so they could have firing lanes for their machine guns. During a lull in the fighting, Sergeant John Bassalone ran back to the command post and grabbed 100 pounds in ammunition as well as new barrels for his machine gunners. On his way back, he found that two of his machine guns had jammed in his absence and the crews were dead. He ran to his own machine gun pit picked up the 50-pound gun, and moved to one of the abandoned positions, killing six Japanese soldiers along the way. He worked to clear the two jammed guns, 
and then rolled through the mud firing both, at one point having to carry the blistering hot gun on his bare forearm. He would eventually be wounded by mortar fire, but would fight through it. For these actions, he would later be given the Medal of Honor. And for that, John Baslone is awarded our HPH Listener of the Week and double award, the Medal Moment of the Week. Thanks for being a listener, John Baslone. <laughs> I mean, he died like three years, two years later in Japan, but we're going to ignore that. We'll talk about that later, I'm sure. <laughs> Honestly, that's the best outcome for this podcast. You subscribe to the Patreon, you die, we get paid in perpetuity, because this <laughs> has been running since 1945. <laughs> we outlive Frank Sinatra. Fuck that guy. The action around Henderson Field on October 24th was a massive failure for the Japanese. In the fighting, they lost about 3,000 troops compared to the U.S.'s loss of only 80 troops. They were once again forced to retreat to the northwestern side of the island and once again starved and struggled as they did so. They became so weak, they were able to travel just 200 meters a day and several decided to take the easy way out by hugging a live grenade. Yes, Greg, and little known fact, the Marines, the U.S. Marines, were enduring their own suffering. Sure, they were well-fed, but disease ran rampant, specifically malaria. Doctors estimated that approximately 90% of the fighting force on Guadalcanal contracted the disease and had to be pulled off the front lines because of it. Dysentery also became a problem with men having to stop and shit 20 times a day. Several just cut slits in their pants so they wouldn't even have to stop walking while making bad bathroom down their legs. Bad bathroom. Yeah. I I like that terminology. (laughs) (laughs) In November... The Japanese planned yet another massive landing, which they dubbed (laughs) Z-Day, on original fucks. Again, completely impartial. Both sides. Hashtag both sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, Z-Day called for another massive bombardment of Henderson Field in the landing of 13,000 Japanese troops. Unfortunately for the Japanese, the U.S. aircraft carrier, the USS Enterprise, was back, baby. Woo! In between her aircraft and the bombers at Henderson, they did enough damage to keep those fucking Japs. I, I don't think I can say it like that, can I? Well, it's it's getting oh, I got carried away. Yeah. Well, that's just, that's what they called them. I will not call it. They did enough damage to keep the Japanese from bombing Henderson Field. How's that? Is that better? I guess. I'm less excited now. I was like, yeah, yeah. get him. Well, I just don't want people thinking I'm, you know. I was fully erect and saluting the American flag, and you're like, oh, no, that's not that's not right. I can't say that. Impartial. Okay. Impartial. Yes, that, that's what we do. Impartial okay. jurors. When the Japanese transport ships approached Guadalcanal, they were easy targets for the American bombers. Of the 13,000 reinforcements that the Japanese brought, Only 2,000 made it ashore, and most of them were wounded or without equipment completely. 
the Japanese soldiers left on the island began to starve to death. They ate grass and roots and gnawed on their own belts and shoes. One officer's report on December 8th said that of the 3,000 men in his regiment, only 60 to 70 remained able to fight. So this is like one of my big fears. We live in a very first world society. Like if you don't have any meat, you're like, oh shit, I gotta go to the grocery store and buy something. Like I'm I'm going broke. But between this and the Donner Party, just reading about these people starving and having nothing to eat and they start chewing on their own belts. That's pretty crazy, man. Like you like you can't even imagine that level of starvation. Just give me some nutrients from leather. You know, that's exactly what I was thinking when I came across this is the Donner Party and how they were like boiling leather. And yeah. I've I've heard I've heard it in other stories. And these guys are boiling like how do people know to do that? Right. Yeah. It's like it's I feel a- like if we did it today, there'd be so many chemicals in it, we'd just immediately <laughs> get cancerous tumors. And that would kill us before we even died of the actual hunger. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it, is, it is a weird question because, like, it's, oh, it's made from an animal. What if I boiled this and drank the broth from my belt? Like, how does that idea come across your mind? But it seems to be a concurring theme between all of these starvation stories. It's very strange. that That's just, like, maybe it's an I, instinct thing? I think thing? that probably has... um it has a lot of roots tied into how privileged we are <laughs> Yes, 100%. as a first world society to where we don't even know you can do that. Yeah. Why don't we know? Because f- why would you ever need to know? Yeah. You know? Going back to like the second point of this story where it's like, hey, there were a bunch of spiders and snakes on this, and alligators on this island. I'm like, I'm out. Fuck you. <laughs> I didn't sign up you for get, this shit. That's when you got to get that, uh, that wood brand off like the deep wood brand <laughs> right off. yeah it's not even just the regular off when you're going out to like the pool or something yeah no. mosquitoes no it's like real shit like mm. i need you gotta get that alligator off, off. <laughs> the alligator starts to almost chop down on your fucking leg and it's like oh <laughs> oh what's that smell oh, ah. <laughs> i'm out of here <laughs> fuck this <laughs> i wish there was an uncle off Anyway, the U.S. Marines, who had spent four months on this island, are pulled back and sent to Australia. They needed a little bit of R&R, okay? Clearing the remaining Japanese on Guadalcanal was left to the Army, who did so through the use of close-quarters combat and flamethrowers, which are now illegal by the Geneva Convention, against an enemy that was determined to die fighting. Several U.S. soldiers noted that it appeared as if the starving Japanese had resorted to eating the dead. On New Year's Eve, mm, December 31st, while everybody's popping champagne corks, uh-huh. throwing up fireworks, the Japanese finally decided it was hopeless, and they came up with a plan to withdraw from the island. In February of 1943, they launched a counterintelligence mission that led the U.S. Army to believe they were building up for another offensive. Instead, the remaining Japanese forces slipped off the island as the Army solidified their defensive positions. The Battle of Guadalcanal had begun as a quickly thrown-together mess 
in which the U.S. Marines were left without any support or supplies. There were several times during the campaign that the Japanese could have seized the initiative and driven the Americans off the island. But the Japanese were rigid in their orders and saw improvisation in battle as a weakness, just like the Germans would later do. The Americans trained their men to be flexible and take the initiative. As a result, the U.S. won the battle, but would they win the war? You'll find out some other time. <laughs> so, for now, end of story. Woo! We did it! I can't believe that just happened. But between the two of us, we told the story of the battle Guadalcanal. But people are like, no, two guys, just two regular dudes who have researched history, they can't do that. They can't just like read stories and and put together facts and figures and tell the story of Guadalcanal, but I... <laughs> These guys can't read a book and parse information from it and then deliver it to me in a compact form? That would be ridiculous. <laughs> That's right. And you know what? You're ridiculous! Because we just fucking did it. But, you know what, Greg? I think we did it, but there's probably like a few things we left out. Just so we could save them for this segment called The Fast Facts. Fast Fact Number One. During the naval battle near Savo Island on August 8th, 1942, the U.S. cruiser Chicago had a really shitty night. They took serious damage, accidentally fired on their allies, and then booked it from the fight without warning other ships in the area that the Japanese were there. And that led to even more lost ships and sailors. Shortly after he was interviewed by investigators in 1943, the Chicago's captain, Howard Bodie, shot and killed himself. <laughs> Fast Fact Number 2 During the Battle of Bloody Ridge on September 13th, Colonel Edson realized that his radios had been compromised when he asked for an update and received one from someone speaking horribly broken English. As a result, the Marines started using Navajo Indians to send coded messages in the Navajo language. The Japanese never broke the codes. Fast Fact Number three. After several battles, the Japanese grew to fear the Marines and were given propaganda to deter them from taking any Marine prisoners. One such notice read, quote, The Americans on the island are not ordinary troops, but Marines, a special force recruited from jails and insane asylums for bloodlust. There is no honorable death for their prisoners. End quote. Fast Fact Number 4 The United States and Japanese navies engaged in a battle in late October known as the Battle of the Santa Cruz Islands. During this battle, the U.S. lost two ships and another seven were heavily damaged while the Japanese didn't lose a single ship. The biggest loss for the U.S. was the aircraft carrier, the USS Hornet, which sank just six months after transporting Jimmy Doolittle and his airmen during the famed Doolittle Raid of Tokyo, which you can hear all about in episode 112 of 100 Proof History. 
All right. Well, we did it. Told that story. Hope you enjoyed it. We're continuing on our World War II path, although we're kind of jumping around in the timeline, just telling you really cool stories from that war. But as Greg told you in the intro, sadly, we are taking a month off. We're going to go recuperate. But no, I I am upset. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> mm, I'm just I'm thinking of when we come back. Yeah, that's how ex- happy I'm yeah. going to be. That's what I was <laughs> wooing about. But we will be back in about a month with some more stories. We're going to come back tell more World War II stuff. I think we did this thing where like 2021 it was World War One, 2022 is going to be World War Two. But there's so much. Left to cover. I don't know if we're going to get finished in the year. We'll see. But uh, you guys enjoy the next month. Check out the Patreon where for just $3 a month, you can check out, like uh, I think it's 49 old episodes, 60 hangovers, and some videos. I mean, that's so much shit to get you through this next hot summer month. Emphasis on shit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's be fair. It is this podcast. No, it's fantastic. It's not like you're getting nugs of gold or something, okay? <laughs> I, I don't want the expectations to be too high to where you pay uh, half a gallon of gas and you're like, oh my God, these hundreds of hours of extra content are not worth it. I just don't want you to, to feel that, <laughs> listener. I feel like he... He just kind of like downplayed it, but also upsold it. That was amazing. It's called manipulation, Chris. <laughs> no, that's a great sell job, Greg. And if you want to find it, go to hunterproofhistory.com. We have a link directly to the Patreon there. And just like Greg said, man, it's, it's so much shit for $3 a month. Less than a gallon of gas. Insane. Also... You can find us on social media at 100100proofhistory. That's Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Although I think we've made it pretty clear throughout this episode that Twitter makes us sad. It is a cesspool of shit. (laughs) It really is. In in case we have not laid that out appropriately, it is a cesspool of cum shit. So mostly you will find us on the Instagram where we can just post a picture and disappear for a few days. We thank you for listening. For myself, Wolf Dick, our esteemed invalid producer, Dan Dan, the intro man, Hambone, the space and time traveling hand puppet that just loves to get you off. We say thank you for listening. Gregory, main host best host see you in a month host what do you have to say to these humans and I will always love you we'll take a break for a month and see you on the other side goodbye listener chills alright goodbye made just a few grammatical changes to the intro so yeah so did i okay good yeah. I don't, it was like a there are there was r maybe
yeah, yeah, oh, I yeah. got it. And the, is considered. That sounds yeah, so fucking yeah, yeah, stupid yeah. and childish, like a baby wrote it. <laughs> like <a> stupid fuck. <laughs> I'm glad we laugh at this shit, because I feel like half the time, if people didn't hear us laugh at these things, it would just think we're mean to each other. Like, like those Me to you, mainly. <laughs> yeah, and those bloopers. <laughs> yeah. They'll so fucking dog cuss you, but then we'll uh, leave in the laugh. So uh, yeah. people know. Yeah. No wonder that guy wants to fucking kill himself all the time. <laughs> it's not even a blooper. It's a cry for help. Let's see if anybody's listening this long. <laughs> I know he doesn't have editorial control, so this is his only outreach <laughs> ability. If they wanted to win the war, the Americans were going to have to gain a foothold in the Pacific. And so they turn their eyes to a tiny speck of land in the Solomon Islands archipelago. I said that weird. Like I didn't know archipelago was coming. Mm-hmm. Archipelago Johnson was his name. <laughs> sounds he like didn't a fucking coming. <laughs> it sounds like a DuckTales character. Just a pantsless duck with his corkscrew penis just sneaking up on you. <laughs> you hear that? You heard the yeah. scream? <laughs> okay. I'm sure she's fine. It wasn't a real scream. She's just down there getting fucking brutally murdered. And I'm like, I swear, officer, I was doing a podcast the whole time. <laughs> I couldn't hear anything. I was talking about Archipelago Johnson and his corkscrew dick. <laughs> Don't fucking make a noise at my bedroom. I like to see you struggle, too. It's not just me. Oh, that's stupid. God damn it. It's not just that hooker screaming in my living room. <laughs> All chained up. <laughs> Fuck, I forgot to kill her before the podcast. Hmm. <laughs> and that's when he came in the room, brandishing his corkscrew penis. Because the penis was higher than my head. And he's like, God Stupid. damn it, not again. Gotta get better at this. <laughs> he goes home and Dubai, he like runs the Sears and steals a tiny mannequin. Takes it home. <laughs> he kidnaps John Walsh's kid from a Sears. Oh my God. <laughs> Gets good aim, then cuts off his head and abandons it in a Florida field. <laughs> God. <laughs> Why are you black and white, Greg? Because I want to be noir. <laughs> The podcasts of old. <laughs> do you even know the dates? I do not. I do not know the date. I know we're going. We'll be back in August. You know what? I don't like August. the fucking date system. I we're think we need to abolish dates. <laughs> we need to go straight to marriage. <laughs> August 4th. You get betrothed, come back. and you meet your husband, and then you get fucked. Same day. <laughs> For a dowry. Yeah. I'm reading this uh, book, actually, to enjoy it, Under the Banner of Heaven. There's a Hulu series based sort of on it, but it's about oh, yeah, the, I'm more... the Bible. One up to you. <laughs> you don't say that shit. No, you don't bring that. Don't bring that in here. What is that? You don't bring that noise. No, you don't bring that trash in here. Just reject it. Ken Bay, Matumbo style from up top. You struggled so much to do that. <laughs> it was worth it, right? That's good history points, though. That was good history points. I watched a one-hour <laughs> History Channel fucking Battle 360 production. 
yeah. of this and look at me just fucking going toe to toe with you, bitch. You waste so much time reading these fucking books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there's like a whole history series that focuses entirely on the Enterprise and what it did during World War II. And this is that was the one I actually watched. <laughs> yeah, okay, it was yeah. very informative. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least edit it to where it sounds like at least they can understand what's happening. Yeah. The God bless oh. the. Okay. Okay. Oh you know, no, I, no, I, 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 no, no. I know how to edit. You know, I know, know how to edit. What am I even doing here? I, I don't know how to edit. <laughs> Fucking dumb bitch.